Well, I am here this morning with my friend Devin Tarr, and Devin doesn't normally get to preach on Sundays, but our lead pastor, Andrew, is on sabbatical. So we have gone to our very deep bench of skilled speakers, people who are passionate about Jesus. One of the things that I appreciate about Devin is that he's not just a teacher, but he's a learner. And so, Lord, would you bless him as he shares this morning? Lord, I thank you for the word that you have put on his heart that will be an encouragement to us. I thank you for new ways that your word will come alive. And so, uh, Lord, would you just pull off any veil that we might have and allow us to receive from you through Devin this morning? In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Amy. Well, good morning, Neighborhood Church. It's a delight to get to worship with you and uh, connect with you here on July 3rd, the day before our nation's birthday. And we are going through a series right now called A Thousand Names, where we're taking the summer to look at the various names of God through Scripture and the various attributes that are given to God in Scripture so that we can better know who this God is that we worship. But one thing I want to say before anything else is if you didn't see last week's message done by Janet Henman, I so, so encourage you to please go watch last week's message. It was moving beyond belief, and I believe that the Lord will touch you as well if you have not experienced that yet. That being said, um, uh, Father, would you use me this morning to speak your word faithfully? Would you change and transform our hearts to be more like your son, Jesus? In his name we pray, amen. So, this morning, I'm going to be talking about one of the names of God called the Lord Our Banner, which in the Hebrew is Jehovah Nisi. And uh, Hebrew reads right to left. And so on this slide that you can see here, uh, Yahweh is the Hebrew word on the right, uh, and then Nisi is the word on the left. So it literally says Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is our banner. And the first place that we see this in Scripture is in the book of Exodus, specifically Exodus chapter 17, verse 15. And where we're going to be headed this morning is uh, essentially four movements. Uh, first, we're going to begin by reading Exodus 17, verses 1 through 16 together. Next, I'll spend a little bit of time summarizing this narrative and drawing out just some of the things that I think are pretty interesting here. Thirdly, I'm going to take some time to unpack what this name of God means, Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is our banner. Uh, this is not language that, if you're like me, you use in common conversation uh, here in the United States. It's not often that you call things your banner. So my hope is to open this up a little bit and show you what Scripture is trying to communicate when it refers to God in this way. And then we'll close with some steps for practical application so that hopefully this message is one that transforms you and you walk away changed and drawing nearer to God than you had before. So let's begin with reading Exodus 17, starting in verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then in verse 4, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place testing and quarreling because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then in verse eight, then the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Verse 12, when Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Okay, now I want to provide a little bit of geographical context for where this whole story is happening, for where the Israelites are at the moment. If you take a look at this slide, you'll see a map of uh, part of the Middle East. You can see Egypt is on the left, and then the uh, uh, desert of Sinai is on the right there. And you can see that I've marked with an arrow where it is believed that Rephidim is. Uh, and it's, you know, you can see basically in the middle of the desert, in, in the middle of nowhere. So, it's understandable that the Israelites were thirsty. It's understandable that they were maybe a little dismayed and discouraged. And, uh, uh, and I want to take a moment here to just summarize a little bit of what it is that, um, that we just read here to, to try to draw out some of the elements or some of the themes of this account. So it begins with the people of Israel having journeyed to this desert in, just outside of Sinai. Um, they're thirsty and uh, they're not... 
they're not filled with faith at the moment. They're pretty upset at one another. They're pretty upset at Moses. And there's a lot of internal dissension going on in the camp. And at the very same time that they are quarreling with one another and doubting God, that is the moment that then another army comes and attacks them. And you know, often I think in our life, this is what happens. It's, it's, it's very discouraging when you're already going through a very trying time and then things get even worse and things get even harder. And Moses could have responded a number of different ways when this occurred. He could have begun, uh, gathered a war council around him and, and begun strategizing for how might he uh, best overcome this new threat uh, that was to happen. But he doesn't. Um, Moses instead takes his most trusted lieutenant, as it were, uh, his servant Joshua, and he tells Joshua, go out and fight with the Amalekites. And then what he does is he gathers a team around him of Aaron and Hur, and he goes to the top of a hill. And at this hill, you can see in this wonderful graphic for this next slide, Moses lifts his arms high, and he has the staff of God in his arms. And that is the battle plan for how they will defeat the Amalekites, is it is through praise. It is through trusting in God. It is putting all of his hope and faith that the Lord Lord will deliver them once again. Because Moses has seen the Lord do miracles, and Moses believes that the Lord is well able to save his people. Moses has seen the Lord part the Red Sea. Moses has seen the Lord um, uh, provide food and manna for the Israelites. Moses um, has uh, thus trust in the Lord after having just seen the Lord provide water right from the rock in the middle of nowhere. God does a miracle. And so again, he puts his faith and his trust in the Lord. And uh, as long as his arms are held high, the people of God are victorious. But you know, sometimes it's difficult to stay in that place of trust, that place of faith and praise, um, even when you've seen the Lord do these wonderful things. And so Moses didn't fight alone. Moses gathered a team around him. And as you'll see later, I think that is key to our own growth in our spiritual life. How do we move our hearts in such a way that they remain faithful to God when when everything around us is falling apart and you need a team around you to support you and hold your hands high. So that's what we've seen going on. Now, I want to take a moment and begin to unpack what does this mean, the Lord is my banner or Jehovah Nisi. Well, in the Hebrew, the word Nisi is generally translated in three different ways across scripture. One of the ways is as a banner, which would mean a standard or a flag. Another way is as a signal pole, which would be a wooden pole lifted high enough that it could be seen by anyone in the near area. And the third way Nisi is used is just as the word signal, a way of communicating something non-verbally to those around you. 
And I want to show you for a moment uh, some other places in Scripture where we see the, uh, the word Nisi used. And the first is uh, two verses in the book of Isaiah, where most translators will translate this as signal. The first is from Isaiah 5.26. It reads, He, namely God, will raise a signal, a Nisi, for nations far away, and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And then Isaiah 11.10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, which would be Jesus, by the way, shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire. Now, I want to move on and show you a couple other ways that this Hebrew word is translated, namely where it is called a banner. Uh, one comes from the Psalms and another comes from Jeremiah. So the first is in Psalm 60, verse 4. It reads, you have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. And also in Jeremiah 50, declare among the nations and proclaim, set up a banner and proclaim, Babylon is taken and Bel is put to shame. So we can summarize what this word Nisi is getting at here. Um, on the next slide, uh, you'll see that Nisi is best translated as a signal that declares to friends and foes who it is that reigns in that particular space. If uh, this banner is your banner, it is something that you run to. If it is the enemy's banner, it is the place that you attack because that's where you know the enemy is. And given that today is just July 3rd. Let me show you maybe the most famous banner in America. You see, uh, in September of 1814, there was a battle over Fort McHenry, and a, a poet memorialized this battle named Sir Francis Scott Key, uh, and he composed a poem which became the national anthem of the United States, and we call it the Star-Spangled Banner. The poem reads, O oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. So, even though we don't use the term banner very often in uh, our speech here in 21st century America, um, within our very national anthem, this language is used. And hopefully you can begin to see now the significance of what the Lord being our banner might be. You see, imagine if you were one of our soldiers, one of the men or women who have fought for the liberties in our country, who we recognize and memorialize on Independence Day. 
If you are an American soldier separated from your company and you need to get back to the space, back to the place of your refuge where you know that you will be safe, you can look over the battlefield and find where is the American flag flying. Because wherever the banner of our flag is, that is where the American force is. Uh, and so a banner, right, is it's a place that you run to for safety. It's a place that you run to for refuge. When, when the bombs are bursting around you, your banner is where you go for safety and help. And so when Moses declares that the Lord is his banner, what he's saying is that he's not trusting in uh, the chariots to save him. He's not trusting in Joshua to save him. Moses is saying, I know know where my help comes from. And my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, because he is my banner. He is the place that I run to when everything around me is breaking down. And so, my question for you is, is the Lord your banner? Is the Lord the place that you run to for refuge and safety when everything in your life is breaking down? I think a lot of us would like to say so, especially if you already are a Christian. You'd want to claim, yes, of course, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my rock. He's the one I run to. But if we are honest with ourselves, I don't think that that's always our first stop. I think for a lot of us, um, we look for safety in other things. Uh, maybe we try to find our safety in our bank account, or maybe we try to find safety in our family, or in our career, or our moral virtue. Maybe we um, look to worldly comforts, whether that's alcohol or drugs or nicotine or whatever it might be that, oh, you know, I'm really stressed. I just need a beer, you know, or uh, whatever it is. You know, I think it's very easy for us to look for help to, to satisfy our souls in a place other than the Lord. So I'd like for you to take a moment and really reflect and ask yourself, is the Lord your banner? Is the Lord the place that you go to for refuge and safety when you need it most? Maybe you're more righteous than I am, but I uh, certainly felt the pain of that question when I asked myself that. And it led me to ask, well, if the Lord is not my banner, how can I make the Lord my banner? How can I so work on, on forming my heart and my soul in such a way that the Lord is the one that I run to when I am in need? And you know, um, I, I became a Christian, uh, uh, well, I, I really encountered the Lord 
in a life-changing way in 2007. Um, and I've lived within the evangelical community uh, essentially from that time until now. This year is my 15 years, you know, as a Christian. And um, uh, what I've found is that there are certain practices, there are certain habits that seem to be common to our evangelical community of, of what we try to do to form our souls and, and make our hearts more in love with Jesus. Some of these common practices are attending church on Sunday. Another one would be studying the Bible. Um, another might be, if you're, you know, really going for it, uh, engaging in fasting. Maybe you've done Daniel fasts before, or you've done a three-day water fast. Um, hopefully, for most of us, uh, maybe we're in the habit of going to small groups. And, and through these practices of attending church and engaging in Bible study and maybe fasting on occasion and going to a weekly small group, we can see changes happening in our hearts. And you know, all of these things are good. Um, uh, I still engage with all of these practices. But I found that I needed more. Um, after having lived and been running with Jesus for 15 years, these began to be not enough. And I started to see in my own heart sometimes a tendency and a temptation to look to other things in the world for my comfort instead of really looking to the Lord as my banner and my place of refuge. And um, uh, I'm so thankful that really beginning, I would say, in last November, November of 2021, the Lord began to bring into my life um, four helps, I will call them, uh, that have made all the difference in empowering me and enabling me to see my own heart transformed before me. And so if you look at this and go, man, how do I make the Lord my banner? How do I see my heart transformed? Devin, I, I want to be someone who's on fire. I want to be someone who has what you're discussing, but how do I get there? Well, there are, I think, a lot of different ways, but I will share with you the four things that the Lord has used in my own life to really begin to make a difference. The first is um, what I would call praying the daily office. Now, this is um, uh, uh, a, a form of prayer that has the following structure. Uh, as you can likely see on this slide, it begins with some opening verses from Scripture. Then there's a time of reading the Psalms. Then there's an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading. You say the Apostles' Creed. You pray the Our Father. There's a time of intercession for um, the church and for your family and uh, your nation and other items that you care about. And then there's a prayer for the day that kind of collects together everything that you've just gone through. 
And this um, uh, habit of prayer, this structure of prayer, actually has a very rich and deep history, was what I come, came to, to learn. Um, it has its roots in the 6th century. There was a monk by the name of Benedict. We call him Saint Benedict. He lived in the 6th century, and he um, created this form of prayer to help organize the life of the monks living in a monastic community. I mean, just imagine, okay, if you're a monk, so you live in a monastery, and all you do is essentially copy scripture and pray and fast, how in the world does that not become stale? I mean, when I say that, do you feel in yourself an immense desire to go run and be a monk? Um, my suspicion is probably not. Um, and, and so uh, what he found was, hey, even the monks, even those who have devoted themselves to a life of pursuing the Lord as the, the number one thing in their life, they need help for their own souls to be formed for how to make the Lord the very center of their life. And, and there's a, a scripture in the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 119, 164, if my memory serves me correctly, and it says something to the effect of, I, I rise seven times a day to praise you, um, to give glory to you because of your righteousness. And St. Benedict read that, and he thought about the Jewish practice of prayer, where the Jews would have these hours of prayer throughout the day where they would keep their hearts focused on God. And, and he constructed this form of prayer, which is called the daily office. Now, um, I'm very thankful that, uh, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say I'm thankful that we're not all monks, um, but I think I am because we need to be out in the world and, and doing good for others, and we can't just live cloistered in a community. But what we can do is we can glean from this rich tradition, which is used not only in the Catholic Church, but is used in the Orthodox Church and in Protestant churches by the Lutherans and the Anglicans and the Presbyterians and others. This form of prayer is, is universal universal across time and geography in the church. So if it's worked for Christians for 1,500 years, and if it's worked for Christians across cultures, maybe it would work for you too. I know that it's worked for me. And so there is an app. I, I had it on that slide that we looked uh, at previously. It's called Forward Day by Day. And I would encourage you, if you have an iPhone or an Android, you can go on the App Store and, uh, and search for this, forward day by day. And what this app will do is it will give you a morning prayer, a noonday prayer, and an evening prayer, and it'll walk you through this, and it updates it every day. So it's updating the Psalms, it's updating the scriptures, it's updating what the prayer of the day is, and you might just find that a helpful practice for your own soul's formation. What it does is it makes space for God in your life. Okay, the second help that I have found absolutely transformative uh, in, in making my heart commune with the Lord more is exactly what I just said. It is the mystery of Holy Communion. 
You see, um, I would encourage you to please, uh, at your own leisure, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and 11. And prayerfully and humbly read through 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and let the Lord speak to you from those verses. What you'll find is that scripture does not take communion lightly. Um, Paul says that there are actually members of the early church that were falling sick or dying because they were taking communion lightly. And, and for me personally, now there's a lot of different opinion within the Christian church about how to understand communion and, and what it is. And I am frankly content to say it is a mystery. It is a mystery of Holy Communion. But for me, I do believe that it is more than merely symbolic. You see, when we are engaging in communion, we call it Holy Communion for a reason. Because there is something sacred that is happening there where we are being joined to the Lord. You know, um, uh, uh, let me provide an analogy. When you uh, 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 get married, whether you're married or whether you hope to be married one day or whether you've just seen other people get married, um, you understand that that is a holy moment. When a husband and a wife make vows to one another and they pledge to one another, I am going to forsake all others and be holy and completely devoted to you and to you alone. There is a covenant that is made. And when they say their vows to one another, I don't think those vows are merely symbolic. They are, in a way, bringing into being um, this true covenant between that husband and wife. And um, uh, uh, still to keep things as G-rated as I can, but, but within marriage, when a husband and a wife are intimate with one another... That is a reaffirmation of their covenant with one another. Scripture says, when a husband and a wife join together, they are no longer two but become one flesh. And he's not speaking to just a physical union. He's not saying, don't you know that when a husband and a wife unite together physically, that physically they're united? That would just be a tautology. It would just be repeating the same thing. What he's saying is when a husband and wife are together with one another in intimacy, they are communing together and becoming one. And they are reproclaiming and reaffirming that covenant that they made with one another in marriage. And scripture says uh, that when we were baptized into Christ, our baptism signifies the covenant that we are making with the Lord, where we are saying that we are dying to our old life and we are raised again in Christ, united with him in a death like his, that we might be united with him in a life like his, forsaking all others and being one with him. And when we partake in communion, just as when a husband and wife are partaking in intimacy, 
we are reaffirming our baptismal covenant. We are reaffirming that I am completely yours, Lord, and you are completely mine. And just as a husband and wife in intimacy are one with one another, and that is a physical embodied act, so communion is a physical embodied act where we are one with the Lord in that moment. And um, uh, just to give you a quick testimony on this that, that began changing me here, um, this last Christmas I went to a, a midnight service and when the um, priest at the front of the church uh, broke the bread, um, I just began to weep. It was as if the Lord's presence just poured over me and I saw anew and afresh what was happening in that moment, that the Lord's body was truly broken for me and the Lord's blood was shed for this new covenant that I might be made one with him. Um, and that is what began me really looking at the scripture again and thinking again, is there more to this than I've seen before? And now every Sunday when we take communion together, I find it a time where I am transported into the Lord's presence and he is one with me and I am one with him. And so I encourage you, don't take communion lightly. Treat it as a time where you are able to be one with Christ and he is one with you. Okay, help number three for how to transform our hearts and make us more one with the Lord. This would be to find transparent mentorship and community. On this slide are three of the men that have um, been that for me, especially recently. Um, on the left-hand side is our dear brother, Abuna Andraus, a missionary from Egypt. Um, I find that I can be completely honest and transparent with him about anything, and he is a source of wise counsel. And the more open that I am with him, the more that I find that is a space where the Lord is able to work on my heart. In the middle is the man who led me to Christ, Brent Silberbauer. And, uh, and then the last uh, person that was on that slide is my friend Michael Fitzpatrick. And um, I have found that while, while weekly Bible study is great and going to a small group is great, uh, it is so easy if we're just going to church on Sunday or if we're just going to a small group for the relationship to not get deep enough or for the environment to not be close enough that, that we are then comfortable being fully transparent and fully open with what's going on in our lives. But without that transparency and without that openness, you can't experience the, the transformation and the change that you need. You see, just like when we read in Exodus how Moses had that team with him, he had Aaron and her with him to help him raise his arms, to help him hold his hands high to the Lord. So we need brothers or sisters around us that can be with us in our battle, that we can be open with them about our battle, about what we're struggling with and they can help us raise our hands high to the Lord. And, uh, and so I so, I beg of you, this is so huge. Find 
uh, uh, trans, uh, you know, a community or a mentor that you can be fully open and honest with. And if you don't have that, if you say, well, Devin, there's no one in my life that, you know, comes to mind for that, begin to ask God, begin to pray and say, Lord, I know that I need to be in the light. I know that I need to be open before you. Would you bring into my life men or women that can walk beside me, that can walk with me, so that I might be uh, open and uh, able to change and transform? And um, uh, maybe you have someone, even as I say that, that comes to mind. Maybe the Lord is putting on your mind right now, whoever that person or persons are, don't take that lightly. Act on it. Take out your phone and text them right now and say, can we get together for lunch or can we get together this weekend or can we go on a hike? I just want to connect with you. And when you meet with them, share with them, you know, I really want to grow closer to the Lord and, and this is what's been going on in my life and I trust you and know that you're a source of wise counsel and I want to be fully known um, and I, uh, so that you can know me and, and help me. Um, and, and I think you'll find that transformative. Okay, last one here. Help number four, tithing. <laughs> I bet you didn't think that was where I was going to go for help number four. Um, Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, I know that money and tithing are sometimes a sensitive topic in church. I get it. Boy, do I get it. Um, and uh, I, I, for most of my Christian walk, have always been somebody who said, look, if, if you've got a lot of debt and if you're struggling to put food on the table, you know, the Lord wants you to be responsible and to take care of your family. Um, and, you know, without saying that's wrong because I think there's a, a healthy spirit to what I was trying to get across in believing that for so long. I do think it's probably wrong. <laughs> um, uh, I believe that when we set our hearts to actually begin trusting God in a real way with our money, right? When you put your money where your mouth is, you know, that's the, the term that we sometimes use in America. Um, that kind of shows where your faith is. You know, James says, faith without works is dead. And if you say that you believe in the Lord as your provider, and you believe in the Lord as your savior, but you're still trying to strategize and scheme and figure out how you're going to maneuver everything on your own, then are you really trusting in the Lord as your Savior? Or are you saying, Lord, you know, just give me money so that I can help deal with all of this? I think when you're like that widow that Jesus references in the Gospels, and you tithe even from a place of desperation, from a place of faith, from a place of saying, Lord, you are the maker of heaven and earth. It is from you that my help comes. Um, and I am going to begin to actually trust you with my finances. I think you'll find that 
that he can do more than you would imagine. Why do I say that? Um, well, I, I started doing this. I looked at my uh, pay stubs a little while ago, some months ago, and I had seen the Lord be moving in my life in these other three ways, from the daily office and from communion and from uh, being in mentorship and community. And the Lord really spoke to me one day in scripture and impressed upon my heart, Devin, you've seen what I've done for you. Will you trust me with your finances? Because I know you're stressed about your finances. And I said, you know, Lord, I've, I've seen you do enough miracles in all these other places. I'm game. You know, I, I trust you. And, uh, and I'm telling you, the Lord has been providing more than I could ask or imagine since I began doing that. Now, I don't believe God's a slot machine. I don't believe that we give to get. But my point here is just to say, when we really tithe, when we actually offer and trust God with our money, that is a declaration of faith in who our banner is, in who our Savior is. And so if that is not a practice that you're engaged in, I would encourage you, try it out. It has been a help to me. So in conclusion here, um, the Lord is my banner, Jehovah Nisi. What does that mean? It means the Lord is the place that you go to for refuge. The Lord is the place that you go to for your salvation. On the battlefield, when, when the bombs are bursting around you, you search and find, where is my banner? And that is the place you run to. And that is who the Lord ought to be in our life. And so um, I hope that these four helps that I've uh, laid out for you of praying the daily office, of engaging in the mystery of Holy Communion, of finding true mentorship and community that you can be open and honest with, and of walking into tithing. Begin to make the space in your heart where your heart actually begins to change. And I think if you do that, you'll find that the Lord does become your banner. And, uh, uh, and so that's my encouragement to you this July uh, 4th weekend, this Independence Day. As much as we love our country and as much as we are thankful for the liberties that we have in our country, our salvation is not found in the American flag. It's not found in the American banner. Our salvation is found in the banner of the Lord. And so with that, I'd love to pray and we will close. And then I encourage you, enjoy a wonderful, weekend with your family. So Father, I thank you that you are trustworthy. I thank you that you are our Savior. I thank you that you are able to save. Lord, would you move and transform our hearts that you would be the banner in our lives, that we would be able to declare in the heat of the battle, the Lord is my banner. God, would you do this for us in Jesus' name, amen. It's been a blessing. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless.